cast your mind back to 2020, in the midst of COVID, when the world seemed silent, waiting on edge for things to get back to normal. Meanwhile, the UK government was busy negotiating a trade and cooperation agreement with the EU. The 31st of December 2020 was the expiry date of the UK's transitional period. The UK formally left the EU on the 31st of January 2020, with the transitional period, so the rest of 2020, being used to agree a trade and cooperation agreement, and as I said, expiring on the 31st of December 2020. The UK government ended up agreeing a trade and cooperation agreement with the EU on the 24th of December 2020, so on Christmas Eve. While you were very likely huddled up inside during a dark Covid Christmas, the ink was drying on the UK and the EU's trade and cooperation agreement. Now I want you to place yourself in a wood-panelled, warm, musty courtroom, the High Court to be precise, on the 18th of October 2016. Seems like a very long time ago now. Three judges are hearing a case brought by Dos Santos and Gina Miller. If you remember, on the 23rd of June 2016, the UK voted to leave the European Union, and so began the long drawn-out process of Britain's exiting from the EU that would lead us to the 24th of December 2020, the day the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was signed. But go back to the courtroom. After the vote to leave, the UK government announced its intention to invoke Article 50 of the Treaty of the European Union. This is basically official notice to the EU that Britain is withdrawing. The government announced this, believing it could use the royal prerogative to do so without any parliamentary approval or constraint. Exercising the royal prerogative for entering and exiting treaties and conducting foreign affairs. Miller and Dos Santos disagreed. They believed that if the government did this, if they used the royal prerogative without parliamentary approval, they would be nullifying rights made and passed through parliament. The prerogative power, they argued, cannot trample over parliament's rights. But why did they make this argument? Because Parliament is supreme. Law passed by Crown in Parliament, so that means bills that have gone through both Houses of Parliament and been given royal assent to become Acts of Parliament, is what must be followed. Such law can make new laws. It can repeal previous laws. It can amend law. And this includes royal prerogatives. The effect of this is that royal prerogatives exist within the constraints of parliamentary legislation. Indeed, statute parliamentary law can remove a royal prerogative altogether. For example, before the Fixed Term Parliament Act 2011 was passed, there was a royal prerogative by which the government could dissolve Parliament and call an early general election at will. The Fixed Term Parliament Act got rid of that prerogative, and after that Act was passed, election dates were fixed, 
And in order to call an early general election to dissolve Parliament, you needed either a vote of no confidence in the House of Commons or a two-thirds vote in the House of Commons to call that early general election. So Parliament can remove a raw prerogative, but it could also restore a raw prerogative. The Fixed Term Parliament Act was repealed by the Dissolution and Calling of Parliament Act 2022. This actually restored the royal prerogative so that now the government can dissolve Parliament and call an early general election at will. But let me just pause for a second. I've been rabbiting on for a while about royal prerogatives, but what actually are they? These are arbitral powers officially held by the monarch, King Charles III. They are powers that can be exercised at will by King Charles III without parliamentary approval or vote. The main ones include appointing and dismissing ministers, entering and exiting treaties, going to war, conducting foreign affairs, royal assent is another. Charles III does not in effect exercise these prerogatives, while he might do so formally, such as formally dissolving parliament or granting honours, it is on the advice of his government or directly exercised by his government on his behalf. So while we call them royal prerogatives and while they are officially crown powers and remnants of those monarchical powers that existed in previous years, they are in reality government powers, so exercised by the government. But the most important thing is that they are powers that are exercised by the government without needing parliamentary vote or approval. But let's go back to that stuffy High Court room in 2016. Now, as I said, this is the Miller case in which Miller and Dos Santos argued that the royal prerogative for conducting foreign affairs and entering and exiting treaties could not be used to invoke Article 50 and that an act of parliament would be needed. The court, so that's the High Court, but then also later the Supreme Court when this was uh, appealed, would go on to agree. This rule prerogative operates on an international law plane in respect of international law, the court said. It cannot be exercised here in relation to EU treaties, which embed fundamental domestic law and rights. But let's zone in on this royal prerogative to make and unmake treaties. It still exists. It allows governments to operate on an international plane at will and to enter into international agreements without parliamentary vote. In fact, it has been used relatively frequently over the past few years to enter into trade agreements with other countries. But in that courtroom of 2016, something very interesting was said by one of the government's barristers, Sir James EDKC. He said that after the UK has begun the process of exiting the European Union, any new treaty the UK and EU enter into will be subject to the ratification process under the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act 2010, otherwise known as CRAG. He made this point to say that effectively Parliament would, together with its input on domestic legal changes, have a deciding role to play on the UK's withdrawal from the European Union and on any changes to domestic law 
as a result of that withdrawal. After he raised Cragg, the Lord Chief Justice said in the courtroom that Cragg, so remember that's the Constitutional Reform and Governance Act 2010, that process under Cragg of ratifying treaties was of critical importance. So what exactly is Cragg and what does it do? Cragg actually put into statute a convention called the Possumby Convention. Remember that conventions are things you need to know for the SQE. They are political or constitutional practices. They are not binding legally, but they are in effect politically binding. But maybe we'll leave that for another podcast. Cragg introduced a procedure under part two of that act by which treaties must be ratified. That means must be approved by Parliament. Essentially, in order for the government to enter into a treaty, it must lay that treaty before Parliament and Parliament has 21 days within which it can object to the treaty. So you can see that the royal prerogative to enter treaties has been amended because of an act of Parliament. But even here, the amendment has limitations. Under section 22 of Cragg, in exceptional cases, the minister, so the government, can dispense with Cragg's ratification procedure and ratify it themselves, unless the House of Commons has actually resolved that the treaty should not be ratified or entered into. So in effect, the government can still exercise the royal prerogative without Parliament using the exceptional circumstances Section 22 power. This brings me right back to the 24th of December 2020, when the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was signed by the UK and the EU. It now needs ratifying, so approved by Parliament. But the deadline to do so is the 31st of December 2020. Remember, the agreement was agreed on the 24th of December 2020. So we don't have time to follow the 21-day ratification procedure under Cragg. The government could have used its powers under Section 22 of Cragg to ratify the treaty anyway under those exceptional circumstances. But this would have fly flown in the face of the reasoning of the court's judgments in 2016 to establish parliamentary sovereignty and some of the government's own arguments in that case. So what can the government do? They can disapply the ratification procedures under Cragg by passing new primary legislation that implements the Trade and Cooperation Agreement and is of course passed by both Houses of Parliament. The government did this before via the EU Withdrawal Agreement Act 2020 in Section 32, which explicitly disapplied Cragg in respect of the Withdrawal Agreement. And that's exactly what the government did with the Trade and Cooperation Agreement. So under the European Union Future Relationship Act 2020, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement was put into domestic law, and under Section 36 of that Act, Cragg was disapplied. Parliament is sovereign, so a new act can disapply Cragg if it wants. It can ignore any raw prerogative operation and it can ratify a treaty. So you can see the power of an act of Parliament. So summing up, what are we to make of all this? 
This podcast has been made to shine a light on some of the key themes of the UK Constitution that you need to understand for your Esquire 1 exam. At the heart of it is the sovereignty of Parliament. That is why the UK government could not trigger Article 50 without parliamentary consent. It's why the royal prerogative to enter into treaties has been limited by CRAG and operates within the constraints of CRAG. And it's why the government in 2020 had to pass a new act to ratify the Trade and Cooperation Agreement before the 31st of December 2020. But in between the cracks of parliamentary legislation and operating, if you like, outside of such parliamentary sovereignty, are the surviving royal prerogatives. These royal prerogatives exist within any constraints made by Acts of Parliament. They might have been amended by such acts, such as the one we discussed today, the royal prerogative of entering and exiting treaties, which has been amended by CRAG. It might have been removed by an Act of Parliament, so the Fixed Term Parliament Act 2011, in which case you always follow the Act. But of course, remember, that Act in itself was repealed and the royal prerogative was restored. So fundamentally, what you need to understand is that you have within the UK Constitution these arbitral royal prerogative powers, which the government can exercise without parliamentary vote or approval. But ultimately, Parliament is sovereign and these powers exist within the constraints of any parliamentary acts and underneath the umbrella of that parliamentary sovereignty. The assessment specification for the SQE1 states that you need to understand that concept of parliament and parliamentary sovereignty. And it states that you need to understand prerogative power and its relationship with conventions and acts of parliament. You may get an MCQ in which the government tries to exercise a royal prerogative power, which affects your client, but that that power has in some way been affected or even repealed by an act of parliament, in which case you need to read the facts and judge whether the government is legally exercising that royal prerogative in the context of the act. Similarly, you might get an MCQ where you're actually advising a minister, so a member of government, who wants to use a royal prerogative and you have to check whether on the facts of the MCQ there's an existing act which again amends or repeals that royal prerogative. You do not need to know the provisions of the Constitution Reform and Governance Act 2010. Indeed, you don't need to know that act. You don't need to know the Miller case or the facts of the Miller case. But what these laws and this, this legislation, what they do is that they illuminate the operation of the raw prerogative and parliamentary sovereignty. And hopefully this podcast has helped with that, has helped you to understand those principles of the Constitution that you need to know for the SQE.